the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. James 5.16 reads, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man 
availeth much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We're going to speak again about those parts necessary to bring about revival in a very practical way again today. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. We're glad you're here. We have a lot to share with you, so we're going to dive right in. But before we begin, let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that this word we'll share today will strengthen your people and encourage them to pray. Lord, we need you more now than ever. Please, Lord, quicken us by your Spirit that we could walk in prayer, effectual, fervent prayer. Lord, thank you. Bless this time we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. And quickly, before we begin, we've been praying for revival on this radio broadcast, and it came to my mind that there are probably at least a hundred churches represented in this listening audience. And we know from the material we've been sharing and from the promises of scripture that if just if there's just one person in your church, and that person is you, who really meets the conditions for revival and who prays, God will answer your prayer. And so we're seeing that there is a really real possibility for there to be revival in many churches across Washington, D.C. If you will take these broadcasts to heart, and we pray that today as we share this material about how to prevail in prayer, that you will be inspired and encouraged to, to do so. There are two steps necessary to begin to promote revival. One is to influence people. That's what we're doing right now as we're on this broadcast. We're speaking to you in order to move you in a specific direction to pray, to cry out to God. The second is to pray, to influence God. Now, it's the truth that influences our hearts. As we hear the truth, we're convicted by it, we decide on a new course of action, we change our behavior based on the truth of the gospel. The second is prayer to move God. Now, I don't mean when I speak of moving God to change God's mind. I don't believe we can change God's mind. We can't change his character. But prayer produces the change in us necessary to allow God with integrity to answer that prayer. So, we want to talk about prevailing prayer today. What is prevailing prayer? And how do we go about it? Because prayer is an essential link to the chain of causes that lead to a revival. So just to quickly 
give an example of what Pastor Ray just shared. We know that God is always willing to forgive sinners, but a person is not actually forgiven until they repent and exercise faith in Christ. So that's what we mean when we say God is not changed by prayer, but we are changed so that it's appropriate for God to answer our prayer and to move as it is his heart to do right now. So similar, we, similarly, we know that God is willing to bring revival. He promised to pour out his Holy Spirit upon all flesh. But for him to do that in a way that doesn't cause us to be proud or self-righteous, um, to continue in sin and thus shame a holy God, we have to offer acceptable prayer. Now, prevailing or effectual prayer is prayer that attains the blessing that it seeks. Now, we're going to share with you some material from Charles Finney as he describes what prevailing prayer is. And he writes, The very idea of effectual prayer is that it affects. It affects its object. So how do we begin to pray in a way that changes us so that God will answer? Well, first of all, he must pray for a definite object. He need not expect to offer such a prayer if he prays at random, without any distinct or definitive object. He must have an object distinctly before his mind. We're now speaking of secret prayer. Many people go away into their room alone to pray simply because they want to say their prayers. And so they read aloud their set prayers that are utterly useless before a holy God. Or they go in for prayer, and instead of having anything to say of a definite nature, they just pray whatever happens to be on their mind. They get on their knees, and whatever floats into their imagination at the time, this is what they pray. When they're finished, they don't have a clue what they prayed for. This is not effectual prayer. What should we think of anyone who should try to move a legislature? Saying, now it's the winter, the legislature is in session, and it's time to send petitions to the legislature. And we went up to the legislature and we began to issue petitions at random without any definite object. Do you think that any of those would be answered? No, of course not. We must have some definite object before our mind. We cannot pray effectively for a variety of objects at once. The mind is so constituted that it cannot fathom many things at the same time. It must be fastened on one thing with an intense desire. So all the instances of effectual prayer recorded in the Bible are prayers of this kind. 
So one example would be Daniel, when he was reading the prophets, he discovered that God had promised to bring the children of Israel out of captivity after 70 years. So he set himself to pray on just that one thing. He wasn't praying about many things at once, and he set himself to pray until God answered. And so we need to pray in accordance with the revealed will of God. To pray for things contrary to the revealed will of God is literally to tempt God. So how do we know the revealed will of God? Well, first, the express promises or predictions in the scriptures. Daniel had a very specific 70-year period that he found in the scriptures based on the writings of Jeremiah and based on that prediction he then began to pray for the deliverance of his people. Sometimes God reveals his will by his province. When he makes it clear that certain events are about to take place we begin to pray about those events. And then he does so by his Holy Spirit. When we're at a loss for what to pray, but we want to pray in accord with his will, the Holy Spirit will instruct us. Where there's no particular revelation and province leaves us in the dark, we still know what to pray for because the Spirit helps us in our infirmities. The Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26 So he, the Holy Spirit, searches the heart. He knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. He knows what Jesus wants. And so he makes intercession for us according to the will of God. And he leads us to pray for just those things with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so when we are filled with the Spirit of God, he will lead our minds and open our minds so that we can pray according to his will. Now, to pray effectively, we must pray with submission, obedience to the will of God. Now, often, submission is confused with indifference. No two things are more unalike. A person coming to a revival, cold of heart, doesn't enter into the spirit of it, has no spirit of prayer, and he hears people crying out to God. He's shocked by their boldness. And all the time, he would insist on the importance of praying with submission. But in fact, he's simply indifferent. This is one of the great issues that I face constantly. I don't choose to be indifferent to the things of God. But I can become very indifferent to the things of God if I am consumed by the world and all the events of the world 
and lose that sacred presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so one example of calling indifferent submission that I encountered was uh, several years ago, I was helping out with a vacation Bible school and they had a prayer team put together and they were allegedly praying for revival. And I was very concerned because one of the prayer meetings was canceled for basically not really valid reasons. And so I was speaking with some of the people who organized the prayer meeting and I said, you know, we can't expect God to send revival if we're not praying for revival, if we're not really seeking him. And this leader said to me, well, we can't expect God to send revival just because we pray for it. It's up to God whether or not he sends revival and it's just presumptuous for us to think that God will send revival because we pray for it. And you know, whether God sends revival or not, that's that's okay. So that's not actually submission to the will of God. That's actually indifference. And it's in a way, it's a kind of fatalism. So that's not what we're talking about. Um, we mean, we know that it's God's will to send revival. And we're going to press into God on that promise. Well, we could also take the case of King David. After Bathsheba, his child grew sick, and he was distressed, and he agonized in prayer and refused to be comforted. He took it so much to heart that when the child died, his servants were afraid to tell him. But as soon as he heard that the child was dead, he laid aside his grief and arose and he asked for food, and he ate, and he drank as usual. And while the child was yet alive, he did not know whether it was the will of God that the child live or die. And so he fasted and prayed and said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that my child may live? He did not know, but that his prayer, his agony, was the very thing on which it turned, whether the child was to live or not. He thought that if he humbled himself and entreated God, perhaps God would spare him this blow. But as soon as God's will appeared and the child was dead, he bowed like a saint. He seemed not only to agree, but to actually take some satisfaction in it, because he said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This was true submission. He reasoned correctly in the case. While he had no revelation of the will of God, he did not know but that the child's recovery depended on his prayer. But when he had the revelation of the will of God, he submitted. While the will of God is not known, to submit without prayer is tempting God. Perhaps, perhaps, the fact of your offering the right kind of prayer may be the thing on which the event turns. In the case of an impenitent friend, the very condition on which he is to be saved from hell may be the fervency of your prayer for that individual. Effectual prayer for a specific object 
also implies a desire for that object that is in line with its importance. So if you truly desire an answer to your prayer, then you will have a proportionate feeling about it. So for example, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he prayed in the garden, his desire was very strong, amounting even to agony. So if we have a strong desire for something and it's benevolent, it's not contrary to the will of God, then we can presume that this is the spirit of God moving in us to desire that thing and that he will answer if we offer prayer. So there's two reasons for this. One is because of the general benevolence of God. So if we see, for example, the salvation of a person, we know it would be an act of benevolence for God to answer that prayer. And so if we find that we have a strong desire for that, and we know that that's in line with God's will, we can have confidence to pray in faith. Um, another example of this in scripture is the case of Jacob in Genesis. So what you find in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob exclaims, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Now it's important to mention here that this intense desire is actually pleasing to God. So God wasn't displeased with Jacob's boldness. Instead, he gave him what he prayed for. And the same thing happened in the case of Moses. So God said to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against the people of Israel and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. So what did Moses do? Did Moses stand aside and, and just let God wipe out the people of Israel? No, he started to think about the Egyptians and what the Egyptians would say if they saw all the people of Israel die in the desert. He says, wherefore should the Egyptians say for mischief did God bring them out? So in a sense, it's as if Moses took hand of the uplifted hand of God and averted this blow. Now, did God rebuke him and tell him that he had no business to interfere? No, he didn't. In fact, it seemed that God was unable to deny such importunity. And so Moses stood in the gap, as we say, and he prevailed with God. So in the, in the present day, prevailing prayer is often offered by Christians when they've been worked up to such a high degree of importunity and holy boldness that afterwards they look back and they're kind of amazed and frightened that they would even pray that way. But those are the kinds of prayers that God answers and that where they obtain the blessing. So prayer, in order to be effectual, that is in, to gain what we pray for, must be offered from right motives. Prayer should not be selfish but should be dictated by supreme regard for the glory of God. A great deal is offered from pure selfishness. Women sometimes pray for their husbands that they may be converted because they say, it would be so much more pleasant to have my husband go to church with me. They seem never to lift up their thoughts above self at all. They don't seem to think how their husbands are dishonoring God by their sins 
or how God would be glorified in their conversion. So it is very often with parents. They cannot bear to think that their children should be lost. They pray for them very earnestly indeed. But if you talk with them upon the subject, they're very tender about it and tell you how good their children are, how they respect religion, how they are indeed almost Christians now. And so they talk as if they were afraid you would hurt their children by simply telling them the truth. They do not think how such amiable and lovely children are dishonoring God by their sins. They're only thinking what a dreadful thing it would be for them to go to hell. Unless their thoughts rise higher than this, their prayers will never prevail with the holy God. The temptation to selfish motives is so strong that there is reason to fear a great many parental prayers never rise above the yearning of parental tenderness. And that is the reason why so many prayers are not answered and why so many pious praying parents have ungodly children. Much of the prayer for the heathen would seem to be based on no higher principle than sympathy. Missionary agents and others are dwelling almost exclusively the 600 millions of heathens going to hell. While little is said of their dishonoring God, this is a great evil. And until the church learns to have higher motives for prayer and missionary effort than simply sympathy for the lost, the prayers and efforts will never amount to very much. Another condition for prayer to be effectual is for that prayer to be made by the intercession of the Holy Spirit. So we should not expect to be able to offer prayer according to the will of God without the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't because we're unable to offer such prayer because we have the promises of Scripture so we know the will of God. We are able to do it just as we're able to obey God and be holy. But the unfortunate fact is that the human heart is so wicked that we never do offer such prayer unless we're influenced by the Spirit of God. So the faith with which we pray has to be the faith that's produced by the effectual operation of the Holy Ghost. Another element of this prayer is that it has to be persevering. In other words, we have to keep praying until God answers. So as a general principle, if a Christian has backslidden and lost the spirit of prayer, that person will not immediately get back into the habit of persevering prayer. Why? Because their minds aren't in the right state. They can't fix their thoughts and hold on to that specific object until the blessing comes. So if their minds were in that state, in which they said, I'm going to persevere until the answer comes, they might offer effectual prayer immediately, just as well as they might after praying many times. But what often happens is that as Christians, we have to pray again and again because our thoughts are so easily wandering away and so easily diverted from what we're praying for. So what we often find is, 
Christians come up to prevailing prayer by a protracted process, meaning that our minds gradually become filled with anxiety about, about a specific person, about a specific church, so that we'll even be starting to go around our daily life with kind of a feeling of anguish and sighing in our souls for him to answer this prayer. So one way to think of it is a mother whose child is sick will often go around her house sighing as if her heart would break, wanting her child to be better. And if she's a praying mother, she's breathing those sighs out to God, and he hears her all day long. If she goes into the room where her child is, she's still thinking about the child. If she's asleep, she's still thinking about her child and might even dream about it worrying that the child might die. Her whole mind is absorbed thinking about her sick child. So this is the state of mind that we would describe as the spirit of prayer. This is a state of mind in which we can offer prevailing prayer to God. As I think about this, Alexandra, I recognize in many such a coldness of heart toward Jesus. And this coldness of heart comes about because this warm desire, this breathing out of my desire, is fixed on something other than Jesus and the will of God. Uh, one man I think of, he seems to be so cold toward Jesus, but he is so warm toward his business opportunities because first and foremost in his mind, he must be a successful businessman. And then when he makes his money, then he'll be more than willing to help the church. He'll be more than willing to focus his attention back on Jesus. This is a false understanding this is not what we're called to. So for what reason did Jacob wrestle all night in prayer with God? Well, he knew that he had done his brother Esau a great injury in getting the birthright through deception. And now he's informed that his injured brother is coming to meet him with an armed force altogether too powerful for him to contend with. There was great reason to suppose that Esau was coming with the purpose of revenge. There were two reasons then why Jacob should be distressed. The first was that he had done this great injury and had never made any restitution. The other was that Esau was coming with a force sufficient to crush him. Now what does he do? Well, he first arranges everything in the best manner he can to placate and meet the brother by sending presents first of property and then his family and then putting those he loved the furthest behind. And by this time, his mind is so overcome that he could not contain himself. And so he goes away over the brook and he begins to pour out his soul in an agony of prayer all night. 
And just as the day is breaking, the angel of the covenant said, Let me go. And Jacob's whole being was, as it were, agonized at the thought of giving up. He cries out, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. His soul was wrought up into an agony, and he obtained the blessing of God. Now he was going to bear for the rest of his life the marks of that intercession. But the Lord God of heaven delivered him. This is prevailing prayer. Now, don't deceive yourselves with thinking that you offer effectual prayer unless you have this intense desire for the blessing. I do not believe in it. Prayer is not effectual unless it is offered up with agony of desire. The Apostle Paul speaks of it as travail of the soul. Jesus Christ, when he was praying in the garden, was in such agony that his sweat was if it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground, Luke twenty-two forty-four. I've never known a person to sweat blood, but I've known a person to pray till the blood started to run from their nose. And I've known persons to pray till they were all wet with perspiration, even in cold weather in the winter. I've known persons to pray for hours till their strength was exhausted with the agony of their minds. Such prayers prevailed with God. I just want to quickly add here that to have this kind of desire, we have to recognize that we can't expect God to just move and fix everything. We can't expect God to just send revival. We can't expect God to just save our family members unless we actually pray. So we have to give up, first of all, a false idea of the sovereignty of God. And secondly, a belief in gradualism of, well, you know, just maybe if I give it enough time, they'll come around, they'll change. Both of those beliefs will numb us out so that we don't have this intense desire. So you have to actually see the crisis of an individual or of a church and recognize that unless God intervenes, they're done. They're hellbound and they're never going to be saved. And the only way God will intervene is if prayer is offered to God on their behalf. I didn't understand this, Alexandra, for many years. But one thing I began to learn was that when I would go in and I would spend a day in prayer, and I was focused on a very specific prayer request that was of utmost importance to me, to my survival. As I prayed about that, the feelings grew and grew and grew until many times finally it would result in tears and agony of heart. I had to have an answer. Now, there have been times when, like David, the answer would finally come, and it was no. But then I knew the revealed will of God and knew to stop praying for that. On one occasion where I had prayed and prayed and prayed, I'm speaking now about 
five to eight hours a day for almost a year. The Lord spoke and he said, no, and don't ask me again. Well, I was terrified. But later, as I came back and I knelt before the Lord, he spoke very kindly and gently to me and said, this is what I will do. And then precisely when he said he would do it, he did it. And the prayer was answered. And his answer to my prayer was much better than what I was asking for. And I've puzzled sometimes, why is it necessary to go so deeply into the agony of heart? Why doesn't God just answer my prayer as I kneel and pray and then get up and go about my business? Well, you said it at the very beginning, Alexandra my heart would become puffed up and proud and I would not know the necessity of absolute submission and walking in righteousness before God. That is of absolute necessity that when I pray, I submit to God I pray what I believe to be my need and His will And I pray that even into travail. Now, what is travail? Tears and agony of heart. Yes, it's the word used giving birth to a child. And some might say, well, pastor, what are you talking about? This is new. No, this is not new. It's new to our day. It's new to our culture. But Jonathan Edwards many, many years ago in the First Great Awakening spoke about this issue. I'd like to read some quotations from Jonathan Edwards. We cannot determine that God shall never give any person so much as a discovery of himself, not only as to the weaken their bodies, but to take away their lives. It is supposed by very learned and judicious divines, that Moses' life was taken away after this manner. This has also been supposed in the case of some of the other saints. If God gives a great increase of discoveries of himself and of his love to him, the benefit is infinitely greater than the calamity, though life should be presently afterward taken away. He's saying, look, if this is so important, are you willing to lay your life down to have this prayer answered? How important is it that your child be saved? How important is it that that you're able to pray for revival and have it come? How important is the salvation of the lost and the dying to you? He continues, There is one particular kind of exercise and concern of mind that may have been empowered by, that has been especially stumbling to some, and that is the deep concern and distress that they've been in for the souls of others. I am sorry that any put us to the trouble of doing that which seems needless 
as defending such things as this. It seems like mere trifling and so plain a case to enter into formal and particular debate in order to determine whether there be anything in the greatness and importance of the case which will answer and bear a proportion to the greatness of the concern that some have manifested. Men may be allowed from no higher a principle than common humanity to be very deeply concerned and greatly exercised in mind at seeing others in great danger of no greater a calamity than drowning or being burned up in a house or fire. And if so, then doubtless it will be allowed to be equally reasonable if they saw them in danger of a calamity ten times greater to be still more concerned and so much more still if the calamity were still vastly greater. And why then should it be thought unreasonable and looked upon with a very suspicious eye as if it must come from some bad cause when persons are extremely concerned at seeing others in very great danger of suffering the wrath of Almighty God to all eternity. And besides, it will doubtless be allowed that those that have a very great degree of the Spirit of God, that is, the Spirit of love, may well be supposed to have vastly more love and compassion to their fellow creatures than those that are influenced only by common humanity. Another example of this kind of prevailing prayer was in Campbell's Lang, 1741-42, and the revival under Willem McCulloch and Whitfield. So when Whitfield reached Campbell's Lang, he immediately preached to a vast congregation about noon on Tuesday. At six o'clock, he preached again, and then a third time at nine. Then... William McCullough took up the parable and preached till one in the morning, and the people were still unwilling to leave. So many were convicted, crying to God for mercy, that Whitfield described the scene as a very field of battle. On the ensuing communion Sunday, Whitfield preached to 20,000 people, and again on the Monday, when he said, You might have seen thousands bathed in tears, some at the same time wringing their hands, others almost swooning, and others crying out in mourning over a pierced Savior. On the voyage from London to Scotland, prior to this, Whitfield had spent most of his time on board ship in secret prayer. This brings us to our next point, which is that if we're going to offer this kind of effectual fervent prayer, as it says in James, we must pray a great deal. For example, if you look at the Apostle James... It was found after he was dead that his knees were callous like a camel's knees because he had prayed so much. This was the secret of the success of the of that early church, is that they were on their knees so much. Now this is important because we need to have that time for the Spirit of God to really lead our minds to consider and to feel for the state of those we are praying for. And if we don't set aside that time, then the Spirit of God has no opportunity to begin to arouse our hearts in that way. Another condition for our prayers to be effectual is that we must offer it in the name of Christ. 
So I can't come to God in my own name. You can't plead your own merits. You can't plead somebody else's merits. You can't say, Lord, this person has given so much to the church, you should really save them. No, we need to come in the name of Christ. And this is really beautiful and powerful when you think about it. So if we pray in the name of Christ, what that means is that we can prevail in prayer just as well as if Jesus himself offered that prayer. So we can receive just as much as God's son would receive if he prayed that same prayer. But we must pray in faith. Another condition, and we've spoken about this this week, to prevail in prayer is we have to renounce all of our sins. You must not only think of them and repent of them, but you must actually renounce your sins and leave them with the purpose in your heart that you will never go back to them again. Now again, back to this idea of praying in faith. To pray in faith means that you expect God to answer you. You expect to obtain the things that you ask for. So you don't need to look for an answer in prayer if you're praying without any expectation of receiving it. But on the other hand, we have to have a valid basis for believing that God will answer that prayer. So as we said earlier, if it's something that's explicitly revealed in the scriptures, we have a basis for expecting God to answer it. If we pray for something that's explicitly stated in the scriptures without any expectation of God doing it, then we're actually making God a liar. If the will of God is indicated by his providence, you ought to depend on it according to how clear it is so far as to expect the blessing that you pray for. If you're led by God's spirit to pray for certain things, you have reason to expect that those things will be done for you as much as if it were written in the Bible. Now, some of you might say, well, if we're going to really believe that God's spirit leads us in this way, how are we going to make sure that we're not led astray by false spirits? We're not led into fanaticism. So the answer, it's true that some people do deceive themselves and think that they're being led by the spirit of God when they're not. Now, this is true in other areas of religions, too. Many people think that they are converted when they're not. Is that a reason why we shouldn't cleave to Jesus? Some people are deceived into thinking that they love God when they don't. But is that any reason why the pious saint who knows that the love of God is shed abroad in his heart should not give vent to his feelings in songs of praise? So likewise, even though some people are deceived in thinking they're led by the Spirit of God when they're not, that doesn't mean that those of us who are led by the Spirit of God, shouldn't stand on that in confidence. Now, we're not saying that we want you to be deceived. We don't want you to follow impulses. If you do follow an impulse, that's your responsibility. But we want you to be sober-minded because the Spirit of God is sober and he will lead you in a sober, rational way by his Spirit. So as we come to of the end of our broadcast today. We have a few minutes left. Let's review what we've said today, Alexandra. Do you want to take a shot at summing it up? 
So what we've shared today is what is the effectual fervent prayer? How do what is prevailing prayer? So quickly, prevailing prayer is prayer that God answers. And essential attributes of this prayer are that to pray for something specific, for a definite object. We have to pray in accordance with the revealed will of God, either by express promises in the Bible, by God's providence, meaning specific circumstances, or by the leading of God's spirit. We also, to pray effectually, we must pray in submission to the will of God. We must have a real desire for the object. We must pray by the intercession of the Holy Spirit with the faith that comes from God. We have to persevere until God answers. Another element that we spoke about is praying a great deal. We spoke about the callous knees of James. We have to pray in the name of Christ, not pleading our own merits. We must renounce all of our sins to offer effectual prayer. That's why it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, not the effectual fervent prayer of a sinner. You have to actually be righteous. You must pray in faith, meaning that you expect God to answer your prayers. So that's what we've covered today. You know, as I think about what we've shared with you today, I look back at my own experience to that time many years ago when I finally began to pray. I made a commitment that I would pray from 10 to 11 o'clock, Monday through Friday. That was a very difficult commitment for me because to that point in my life, I'd only prayed as I was feeling a need to pray. I was not consistent in prayer. I prayed primarily in public as a pastor. I didn't have a, an alive walk with Jesus. And so I set the alarm clock and I said, I'm going to pray from, from 10 to 11 o'clock. And after five minutes, I'd said everything I had to say. And I said, how in the world can anybody pray for an hour? And of course, Jesus said, could you not tarry for one hour with me? I was later to learn that real prayer only begins after the first hour. You wanted to say something, Alexandra. Yes, I just wanted to add, so some of you may be wondering, you know, why does God require all of this agony in prayer? And there's a couple good reasons for that. So the first one is that when we feel this way in prayer, we're actually feeling the way that God feels. So Christ was not just willing to die for sinners, but he actually died so that sinners could be saved. So God has very strong feelings for the lost. And so when we pray in this manner, we are entering into a very close communion with God as he shares his heart with us. Um, another reason why this, this strength of desire is necessary is that it's actually just a natural result of having clear views of the real state of sinners. And what this does is it 
prompts us to have such a burden of prayer that we won't give up until God answers. Now, this does not happen automatically. Uh, in my case, after 10 minutes, I'd said everything twice, three times, and I was done. But I'd made a commitment to stay on my knees for one hour. So what was I to do? Well, I agonized. How do I pray? I don't know how to pray. And the Lord led me to begin to read aloud the Psalms and to pray them back to him. I didn't know at that time to pray the promises. No one had ever said that to me. But I, I began to pray the scriptures. And as I prayed for that very specific object that I was so desperately in need for, day by day that intensity grew until I was spending five or six, seven, eight hours a day on my knees praying because I was that desperate. But it took time for that to build in my heart. Yes, and so I don't want you to say, there's no way I can pray like that and just not even try. But just start where you are and give God that time and let his spirit do that work in your heart. Well, we're out of time for the broadcast today. You can listen to this broadcast again by going to nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. We'd also love to hear from you. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also donate by going online to nationalprayerchapel.com. This is a faith ministry. We depend on the Lord to move in your heart, to quicken you. And I just praise God for those who have this month already given so sacrificially but we know we have a deadline coming again at the end of the month god bless you god bless you thank you for joining us we love you we'll share again with you soon Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.